Section 4 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 6, March 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Lord. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 6, March 1897. Section 4. Monsieur Angot by Charles F. Burke. I have a few moments leisure. I also have a discourse to deliver. This is a piece of unparalleled luck for you people. I am a parrot. I'm a hundred thousand years old, last birthday. Seventeen Thermidor. My count, as you see, by the gospel of the brave commune. Besides, I find my memories failing me somewhat. You must know we are French emigrants. I keep secrets. It takes a thousand years of constant practice to learn that much wisdom. My tongue is black, and my eye-winkers are worn off with age. Parrots never die, at least not unless the act is done on principle, and because of good reasons for committing what my friend Confucius christened Harry Carry. My eyes are goggled. I'm an anarchist. I'm an oriental horoscopist. I see visions. I'm a liar. Sometimes. Liberty forever. Generally, nowadays on the matter of crackers in our house where it suits me to live there is an old man old for a man i mean he's a ridiculous infant to parrots like me the old man sits by the fire all day because of bad legs and a weak head out of compassion for him i sometimes whistle for dogs that amuses him. As the dogs obey, it also demonstrates the superiority of mind over matter. Philosophy is my favorite recreation. On each foot, I have two toes behind and two before to fulfill the law of duality. There is a woman, too, the old man's daughter, she cooks and sews and wears weeds and rubs the old man's legs with things that smell bad. And she also makes to me donations of hemp and sunflower seed out of paper bags when it suits my convenience to eat. Then there is Suzette, the woman's daughter. Her father was a trooper in Duval's regiment of cuirassiers. They made mincemeat of him at Sedan. I lived with his father, too, years ago, about the time Princess Lambal was dismissed from life by those brave communards who murdered women. I lived at a bird fancier's in the Faubourg Saint Antoine, then, and saw many amusing things, the Abbey, the Chatetet, La Force. They used to take me along to cry, Vive la liberté. Well, 
All that was a long time ago. Man, I perceive, as clearly as you, this has nothing to do with Suzette. Suzette's cuirassier papa being no longer of any use to anyone. We came to London after many adventures, and here afterwards came Monsieur Monmarin. This gentleman, whose voice was soft and fawning, and whose estates could not be moved out of Lorraine, became a, what you call it, a member of the secret police, an employé of Johnny Bull, with a cloak over his shifty eyes at night, a government spy. After that, he placed on foot negotiations for the recovery of the estates, which could not be moved. Ho, ho! I become garrulous with advancing years. And to return to ourselves, there is the old man, and the woman, and that woman's daughter. That does not seem hard to comprehend. The daughter is a worker in lace. There you have it. Grandfather, mother, daughter. It is the daughter who is Suzette. Now you know all about it, nor think you do. You must know we have become quite English these years in exile and celebrate the holidays of the natives. France is so far off. As for me, I'm called Monsieur Angot, because, having forgotten the Seira and Carmagnol and the other songs of the revolution long ago, I afterwards sang the opera. I have borne many names, French being proscribed, I sing in English. Suzette would say, Good night, Monsieur Angot. And I would gravely respond, fetching my head from under my wing, to do so, to please her. Oh, my baby, and a treat up. And she would laugh, and go upstairs, after tickling my head. Meanwhile, we were very poor, and Monmorin's visits had become fewer and rarer, and circles came around Suzette's blue eyes. But what then? When Monmorin secured his estates again, which he would shortly, and married Suzette, all would be well. This in confidence from her to me. But as I say, the dark circles came, and Monsieur Monmorin came not. One sharp winter evening, the old man was sitting by the fire as usual, and the woman was getting supper. Suzette came in. You think you know all about girls, you wise fools, eh? You think they are just flesh and blood, and bones, and soft hair, and silk waists, and bits of ribbon, and pinchy shoes. Bah! I have no patience to talk to you. Well, she came in. I knew she was coming, because I know everything. And I got down from my perch and went to listening at the door, pretending to pick a hole in the wall. It is my game to be secretive. She had a few little things done up in paper in her arms, 
and her big eyes were bright, and her little nose was blue with the cold. I knew what was in the papers. The old grandfather and the mother pretended not to see. Holiday frauds. Her face was pale and drawn when she kissed the mother and the old grandfather, and she ran quickly upstairs to her own little room. I followed her. Slower, because it suits my convenience to go slow. I have no nerves, and am never in a hurry. Haste is a synonym of subserviency and instability. So I clawed my way upstairs, stopping on every third step to stand on my head and laugh. That is a way I have. It helps the circulation. I learned that trick from a parrot associated with the first pharaoh. There used to be fine, bloody goings-on in those days. And he told me once, in confidence, that he frequently had to drink mummy to harden his heart. He was a Manasseh parrot with a red and green tail. When I reached the top stair, I resumed my dignity and walked gravely into her little bedroom. I am the only other one can go in there, I can tell you. She was kneeling on the floor by the side of her little white bed, the packages all strewn upon it, and she was crying. I knew she was going to cry. That's the reason I came up. I am a gentleman, however, and would not intrude upon her grief. I caught hold of the window curtain and walked up to the top, tail first. I have my reasons for doing this also. I am over a hundred and fifty thousand years old, and you wouldn't understand my reasons if it suited my convenience to tell you, which it doesn't. She stopped crying and began murmuring softly to herself. That was prayer. <laughs> oh, my conscience, this prayer. People only pray back a couple of thousand years now. They prayed back the same number of years then, and the same before that. Your pitiful minds can't grasp time. It takes parrots like me to do that. Or elephants. I respect elephants. They take up room. I am two hundred thousand years old. I saw the Delphic Oracle playing with toys. When I concluded Suzette had been lonesome long enough, I made two hops and got up on her shoulder. This girl lived and cried in Egypt thousands of years ago. I knew her then and liked her, and that is my reason for liking her now. It suits my convenience. There. I didn't mean to tell you, but let it go. You won't understand anyhow. She said, Polly, oh Polly, like an English girl, just as she moaned to me once before, in the time when Virgil was sucking a bottle over there on the Mediterranean coast. 
I clawed my way down the bosom of her dress, head first. That is a sign of affection. If a parrot does that with you, you are all right. To stand on one's head on the floor is also a sign of affection, mingled with reverence. She stroked my feathers with her little hand, and I croaked to her comfortingly. Then she dropped her wet face into her hands and said her little prayer. The same one she said. She didn't know it, though. When she was a dancing girl, in scanty silks, in the court of that flat-nosed Egyptian king, and the courtiers said sly things about her under their breath. Only she said, Osiris, oh, Osiris, then. Same thing. After the prayer, she took a letter from her dress and spread it out upon the white counterpane. I looked over her shoulder and read it, too. It was from Montmorin, from Paris. Do not reproach. I cannot receive estates without this marriage. Should we marry? Poverty. Accept enclosed money and forget. I'm compelled to save my life, even goodbye. Oh, the damned liar. I am naturally phlegmatic, but I don't like to hear women cry, though I ought to be used to it by this time. I've seen them cry two hundred and fifty thousand years, ever since poor Callisto was poked up into the sky to watch the world for all time, and forbidden to go to bed. She's the one your wise people <laughs> call the constellation of the great bear. I crawled off the bed, leaving Suzette sobbing pitifully. Say, I know this animal man and his ways. Don't I, though? He's a cool hand. I knew him before the first Phoenician galley slave was born to toil, chained to his oar. I knew him before the twig was sprouted that grew the wood that the galley was built of. I knew him before that galley put out of harbour into the blue waters of the western sea to search for ionic freebooters. They usually found them, to their cost, too. They were black-locked, swarthy, throat-cutting pirates, men after my own heart. I knew him when the only thoroughfare outside of chaos was the bit-frost bridge from Mount Olympus in Thessaly to the open gates of Pluto in Avernus, the Milky Way to Jupiter's palace. Before religions were, before Maggie, Brahman, nor Druid. Oh, ho, don't I know him. I was personally acquainted with the wolf Fenris and the Midgard serpent. I've seen the hundred eyes of Argus closed in slumber. I saw an Egyptian matzah boiled in oil once for lying to a woman about marriage. It was in an outlying province where the tribute payers objected to irregularities. Well, to come back to poor Suzette, I couldn't help the matter. 
I stood on my head and croaked quietly. The girl had fallen half asleep and whimpered a little. After a while, as she got up and walked to the mirror and smoothed her fair hair, then she called me. Come on, Monsieur Angon, she said, with a queer little catch in her voice. It's all over now. So we went downstairs, the girl and I, and had supper, and she gave the mother a poor little packet of shillings, which is an English coin to trade for food. And they all talked softly about Paris and Papa Cuirassier, feeding the worms over on the mews. I sat upon her shoulder and nipped her ear, meditating deeply. She laughed, a hard laugh, not like Suzette at all. They all laughed, but I was reminiscing over old days in Egypt, and felt sad and lonesome. There was less silent enduring and more spilling of blood in those times. You people don't understand. I am three hundred thousand years old. I know the hole the Rhone drops into and the outlet of the Caspian Sea. I will live when the light of the sun is turned out, when the earth sinks into the ocean, when the stars fall from the heavens, when time is no more. I am so old that to me the future is the past. Now, about these things I've been telling you, you think you understood them, but you don't, for they happened long ago, and now the old man and the mother are dead, and I have taken up my residence with a London bird fancier. One raw, sloppy evening this spring, I was picking up seeds listlessly and exchanging compliments with a cockatoo in the next cage, but feeling very low-spirited indeed. I am French enough to be influenced by the weather. Blue-nosed people were passing outside, carrying umbrellas and shivering in the fog. Suddenly, a face was pressed against the misted windowpane, the face of a woman, a pinched and painted face with pain-stricken eyes staring in at me. She was thinly attired in a gaudy, faded silk, and a summer hat of straw rested upon her fair hair, dank with the night mists. As she peered in, a big policeman came up behind and laid his hand upon her thin shoulder. She never felt his hand. Her eyes were bright with the death fever, and something glistened and ran down her pallid and haggard cheek. The policeman shook her roughly, and the girl looked up. Then she began to cough. Oh, how she coughed, all doubled up and swaying and staggering against the big policeman. Presently, she sank slowly to the ground, choking convulsively. Her eyes closed. The policeman gathered her up in his arms, as one might lift a baby kicked open the shop door 
and carried her in. Don't litter up my place with that, cried my master, the bird fancier, confronting him. Hold your noise, or I'll break your head, said the big policeman savagely. He laid the girl upon the long counter. The poor bundle of finery clung to him for a moment. Her arms dropped at last, and she turned her head and looked at me, smiling. Monsieur Angor, Monsieur Angor, she whispered. Rockabye, rockabye, on a treetop. Tis a small thing to refuse to comfort one who is dying. So I spat out the seed, modest tulip, and took up the song, just for the sake of old times. Oh, in the maverick, the cradle will fall. Down, down, rockabye, eh? Her eyes were glazing, and she looked at me with a vacant stare, as I thought how changed she was. A slow, sweet smile crept over her lips, and she laid her little head back upon the policeman's arm, nestling it as one about to go to sleep. She whispered in the old girl voice, Good night, Monsieur Angor. A short time after, a long-faced man came with others of his kind and put Suzette into a deal box. As they were screwing the lid down, the big policeman came in and began to blubber, trying to cover it by coughing. My master watched him and grinned. The big policeman waited until the long-faced men had carried out the box. Then, there being nobody else but those two in the shop, he walked up to my master and smote him upon the nose, so that he fell down and squealed like a pig. Then the big policeman left the shop also. All these curious things being over, I resumed my interrupted conversation with the cockatoo. End of section four. Read by Alan Lord.